the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Joe Kipinti. I'm Christoph Defoe. And I'm Sean Prophet. So it's 2022. Let's get at it, folks. In the struggle for justice in America, there have been many ups and downs. The 1930s through the 1970s saw a lot of notable ups, legalization of unions, civil rights, the environmental movement, and so forth. We are now living in a time when the downs dominate. There have been some great and positive changes in the last 20 years, in particular, the emerging rights of the LGBT community, but the general direction has been one of backlash and reactionary entrenchment. A great deal went wrong before that day on January 6th that we're here to talk about. Much has happened since. We are witness to the destructive actions of bad actors trying to stop and reverse social progress. We see this behavior at all human levels from very intimate to the global and national politics. The temptation is to simply say this is history repeating itself and all of this is because of bad people. Well, there's perhaps some truth to both those things. We need to look deeper. And that is what this show is all about. And we will be talking about the January 6th event for that purpose. After answering some viewer questions about our last show, we're going to take a look at what motivated the January 6th attack and how it fits into American history. And also, what lessons we can draw from it. First, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles regularly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. The Radical Secular Podcast is brought to you by Cannibal & Co. Located in downtown Jersey City and at shopcannibal.com. Cannibal, that's Cannibal with a K, stocks a rotating collection of goods ranging from apparel and accessories to home furnishings and fine jewelry. Cannibal weaves together its forward-thinking vision with its traditional roots to provide an expertly curated experience of unique and locally sourced finds. We're grateful to Cannibal for sponsoring our show. Okay, let's get into these t-shirts, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, today I am wearing my um, Star Trek Discovery era um, uh, UFP shirt. That's the uh, Federation of Planets. Very nice. Nice, nice. Um, definitely one of my all-time favorite t-shirts. Um, and I think, right, as we approach 2022, as we uh, remember January 6th, when we think about the monumental problems that we are facing us as a civilization, let alone a country, but certainly also a civilization, um, we need to have a North Star, yeah. right? Something that guides us, right? What are we working toward? What is the outcome we want? And the, I don't think anything, I, I know the two of you will agree, <laughs> but I think that a lot of people would agree that the that, that outcome, right? That goal can be, could be, or should be the United Federation of Planets and every the values of, of inclusiveness and equality and discovery um, that that uh, organization 
fictional or not, mm-hmm. uh, represents. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Universality is 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 what we mm-hmm. you know, so that there's no um, there's a recognition that all people, and by people I also mean aliens, you know, <laughs> any sentient being, right, is equal in dignity, and that's I think yeah. the most important value of the United Federation of Planets. For sure. Yeah, that North Star is actually really just important. It's, it's critical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sean, yeah, what about you? Well, I have, I'm coming at it from the opposite uh, direction. Like <laughs> Good. What we need to get rid of, what we need to stop doing, and that is yeah. fuck Nazis. <laughs> Agreed with that. And, yep. you know, it's not subtle and it, it, it doesn't, it shouldn't be subtle because we are facing a threat that is um, growing, extremely dangerous. And it needs to be named because one of the things that happens is that uh, fascism, like racism, thrives on not being acknowledged. And if we don't acknowledge it, we can't fight it. And so that's what I'm here to say. I mean, a lot of people think that, oh, well, if you weren't in the Third Reich, you're not a Nazi. Well, bullshit. We have millions of Nazis and fascists in the United States of America today. Something like 6% of the American population embraces these openly white supremacist views and violent overthrow of the government and the installation of a of a non-democratic dictator. So that is what we're dealing with. And by the way, they have disproportionate power, perhaps only 6% of the population, right? But their influence on the national conversation has become, in, like, they they punch way above their weight, way above their weight. Um, that's a lot, and that has a lot to do with the structure of our constitution itself, yep. right? That, that, uh, that, that privileges um, people that are on the right, I, just by, and not on purpose, but that's how it's shaken out. Yeah. So. They have a structural yeah, advantage. Points, guys. Structural advantage, exactly. On my part, I mean, I see this, what we're going to be talking about today, this emerging fascism, uh, January 6th, it's completely related to everything else we're worried about, concerned about, like climate change, for example. And so I just want to remind people, again, this is really ultimately what it's all about here. You got one planet. There's only one planet. Well, we only have this one home. And if we don't tackle this issue with this, uh, you know, insurgent populist right-wing movement here in this country and many other places, we won't be able to tackle anything else. We really won't. This is this is the barrier that's stopping us yes. more than anything else. If we want to For fix sure. the world, we need to figure out how to get the world to work together. And all of these nationalist movements in every country where they're, where they're taking place are pulling us farther apart and making it more difficult for us to cooperate. They are, yeah. And speaking of attacks from within, which is the show's name, I want to make one Omicron-related comment to the themes we'll be discussing today. It's widely accepted now that Omicron causes less severe illness, especially in vaccinated people, which most people are at this point in this country and many others. In that sense, it is less of a threat to each of us individually, but it causes a hell of a lot more infections, which increases the threat to society as a whole, to the public. The hospitals are overwhelmed in many places, and there are some already at the breaking point with probably two more weeks to go of increasing cases. And it's tempting to say that Americans are too enmeshed in consumer culture. They don't care about the public good. All of that has some resonance. But as COVID recedes becomes endemic, which it will, we will find ourselves with a healthcare system in shambles. And a closer look reveals that 
with healthcare and many other issues, it's not America that's preventing us from solving a lot of these issues of the public good, right? The truth is many of us Americans, perhaps even the majority are willing to tackle sheer problems and embrace measures aimed at the public good. What is then preventing this nation from tackling these issues? It comes down to what we will be discussing today, a right-wing insurgency born out of the machinations of the powerful corporate interests we've talked about in this show. Yes. We need to understand what happened on January 6th as part of this larger world, one that is affecting all of us, often in ways that are not clear and visible. In the end, what is more consequential, a violent event like January 6th or the slow undermining of the legal framework behind democracy or the blockades against policies we desperately need? Yeah, I think all three. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All three. Seriously. Right. Seriously. So, guys, before we uh, go ahead and tackle that issue, uh, let's talk a little bit about our last show. Mm-hmm. Um, there was interest in the show, which is great, right? Uh, our show is increasing in interest. And we strive to adapt to all of that. We'll try to monitor our live chat better in the future. I think we could do a better job with that. <laughs> last week, we reviewed the film Don't Look Up, and it provoked a number of questions by our audience. So let's go ahead and tackle them. How's that, guys? Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Right. Let's do it. So Twitter follower Polo uh, at IRLPOL noted in our YouTube, uh, the chat, that when, when the U.S. exploded the first atomic bomb, they did so with the possibility that it may, it may ignite the atmosphere. I mean, seriously. Right? And they still did it. Right? Well, and I, yeah, they still did it. It reminds me of when people thought that maybe the uh, CERN, um, the uh, right. Hadron Collider, Large Hadron Collider, was going to possibly create a singularity and destroy the planet. And we turned it, we turned it on anyway, you know? Yeah. yeah, and it's like, all right, I mean, wow. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I think that the nuclear explosion has a little more bang to it. But yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, but I mean, I think it, the, the, the uh, Polo was trying to say that there's an underlying insanity in all this. We need, Maybe we need to address. What do you guys think? Well, yeah, I mean, we're not doing we we don't consider the long term ramifications of our actions in general. I mean, let alone mm-hmm. the short term. Right. It's like if, if it makes money <laughs> for some powerful rich person, it's going to happen. It's going to get done. And that's, exactly that's, right. that's where we fail because we're not considering the larger ramifications. I mean, we could talk about anything. Plastics alone. Even not even talking mm. about climate change. Right. Just the just the subject subject of plastics and plastic waste alone would be a huge issue that would be worth talking about, you know? And, exactly. And it, yeah. that's one of a hundred issues that we have to deal with right now. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I guess you have to think about who's making these fucking decisions. I mean, like, okay, this, this bomb is, was made in World War II. That's what we're doing. But it may ignite the atmosphere. <laughs> Let's go ahead and do it anyway. Who's making that decision? Same thing as, okay, this product that we're selling, fossil fuel, it's good for the economy. We're making tons of money, but it may lead to global catastrophe in decades to come. Let's do it right. anyway. This reminds me a little bit of when Carl Sagan you know, did the calculations and he figured out that if you blow off more than about 100 nuclear weapons at a time, it'll create nuclear winter. Right? Yeah, I remember and, that. And, mm-hmm. and, and even fewer could create a nuclear fall that would actually, you know, something like what happened when the meteor struck the planet and created darkness and created sure. bad growing conditions for a number of years. 
right? I mean, right. it's something beyond like we, we saw what Mount Pinatubo did to the climate for right. a period of time. And, you know, you start blowing off nuclear weapons and you could quickly get into a situation where the entire earth is affected. And so it, it, it's beyond igniting the atmosphere. We already yeah. we know what would happen. I mean, in New England, there was, I think it was in the 1820s, there was a year without a summer when Mount Timburo went off in the, in the Philippines, I think it was, or, mm-hmm. or somewhere out there. Interesting. And it, it was so cold that it actually snowed in July in, in New England. That's there. wild. It's from yeah. the, you know, the particles wow. that are blocking the sunlight. Sure. Um, so, let's move on. What about the idea mentioned, a, a question, that we are embedded in a capitalist, profit-based world, and that we have to work with uh, uh, within those boundaries? We should, I guess... Trust the billionaires, or at least work with them on this, right? I mean, how about that? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, I I, I kind of hit this a little bit last week when I was talking about people trying to work inside the system, right? It's kind of analogous here, right? Is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character thinks that the system that he can be on the inside and affect the change, and so I do think that we need good people everywhere, mm-hmm. right? The activists on the outside pushing is as important as the individual on the inside who has contact with the billionaires and can perhaps influence them in some way. And, you know, I'm just theorizing here. But so I, I don't think it's an either or sort of situation. I don't think that we should uh, that I think activists and people that are pushing from the outside and 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 uh, and really raising the stakes in that way are as important as the people who are working on the inside and who have knowledge of the system. Both of those are important. Yeah, well put. Yeah. And I, well, I would say that the existence of billionaires is the problem. I mean, not not that whether we should trust or work with them. Just the very fact that they exist is um, it, it is a problem for democracy. Was it who was the justice, the chief justice of the Supreme Court? Was it Brandeis who said you can remember. have democracy or great wealth, but not both? And right. yeah. and that is yeah. a that is one of the most cogent quotes of all time about this. I mean, I, I consider that to be. Right up there with, you know, Marx as a critique of capitalism in the sense that Mm -hmm. you cannot have, I mean, somebody on the inside, give them a billion dollars and now they're, you know, their ethics go out the window. They just, they just do. Oh, and and it's absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And, And the same goes for money. Elon Musk used to be kind of a good guy. I mean, there was, you could relate to him. You could relate to, to the, what he was doing. And now he is just throwing his weight around. And, um, because he has this much money, people listen to him and he gets worshipped and he is directly attacked. Democrats call to tax billionaires. And well, of course, what would you expect him to say? You know, he, yeah. he, he, if under Elizabeth Warren's tax plan, he'd be paying, you know, multiple billions of dollars every single year. And uh, he doesn't want to do that. So uh, the rest of society suffers. So, so no, we, we can't work with billionaires. Yeah. I mean, actually, I, both of you are make good points. And I would say the onus is also on them. They need to work with us. Right. And, and yeah. are they working with us? If they are working with us, if they're really, really honestly working with us, the rest of the world, then yeah, let's work with them. But if they're not, fuck them. I mean, really. And they should... Sorry, they should be working if a, a good billionaire would be a billionaire who was using their money to dismantle the fact that the system that caused him to be a billionaire. Like, and that's a big ask, right? Um, but that is the good billionaire, right? I mean, they're good rich people. I mean, M- Warren Buffett is, I think, a good example of that, right? But well, nevertheless, um, you know, these, the, like, uh, 
first of all, billionaires shouldn't exist in the first place. But if I were a, and it's indicative of a broken system, but if I were a billionaire and I thought of myself as a good person, it would be my job to dismantle that very system. It would. And, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, yeah. he, he's been in into, uh, you know, hauling coal. That's one of his main businesses. And yeah. so yeah. it's like these guys, how do you square that? How do you square somebody who is a quote, good billionaire with somebody who is knowingly, I mean, he obviously knows that this business is destroying the climate. So it's just, I, I just think that the human brain is not prepared to cope with having that much power. And I don't think that anybody who does, right. you know, is, is right. going to be able to handle it. It's not a matter of good guys and bad guys. It's a matter of the, the way that things are structured. It just it, first of all, it, it prioritizes it and promotes sociopathic behavior and people like that rise to the top. And secondly, uh, once you have that much power, it's incredibly corruptive. So that's yeah. the issue. We really don't want to put people in that situation. There, there's mm. been a handful of wealthy people who've given away all their money before they've died. You know, but I, I like it's that that frustrates me because it's not even about that. I want them to give away all their money. It's that I want them to be held accountable. Right. It shouldn't be a decision on their part. It should, they shouldn't have a choice in the matter. And when they're at the height of their power is the time when they need to be held most accountable. Not like after Elon Musk has already made all his money and he's retired. It's like right now when he's in the process of, of making decisions that are going to affect our future, right. those should be made democratically, not by one person. Exactly. Yeah. So here's another tough one. This is this was a, a question I hear all the time and it's a hard one. Are we already beyond the tipping point of climate change? And if so, does any of this matter? Well, I mean, I just briefly um, is I don't know the answer to that question, but um, except for to say that, right, some damage is already baked in. Right. We, like we're ready, Pat, like definitely. Right. That's definitely true. Whether or not we're at the end of civilization, I think is a different question. But either way, um, we should work to try and make it better. Right. That, the denialism at the end of that at the end of that question, I, I take issue. with. Yeah. <clears throat> I agree. I think that um, thinking that we're already past a point uh, of no return is the same as denying that climate change is happening at, at all, because both of those positions uh, drive you into inaction and paralysis. Right. And, and honestly, there is no one tipping point. There are tipping points. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing. Right. Well, and, and whatever is happening, anything we do to turn down the temperature is going to be beneficial. Right. Like, um, whether it's geoengineering, whether a volcano erupts, whatever happens that needs to happen uh, to cool us down and give us more time. Right. That's that's what needs to occur. I don't think we're going to get out of this without geoengineering. In some form, no, we're not. And I think that's it's going to that's going to be incredibly expensive, and we're going to wish we never had to do it. We're going to be terraforming Terra. Yeah, yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Elon Musk, why don't you just do that instead of thinking about terraforming Mars? Yeah, seriously, unfucking. And ultimately, the other thing too, we don't know. We don't. I mean, if, yeah, if, if I somehow was omniscient and could hundred percent knew that we were past the quote a tipping point, then yeah, hell, I just party and whatever. But we don't know. <laughs> Nobody right. knows whether we're, we're beyond that critical point where civilization's already busted and it will be in the future. Right. We don't know that. Well, right. it's holding together for the moment uh, in, yeah. at some level. But what we do know is that there's an interaction between climate and uh, the ability to govern. Because when crises get past a certain point, uh, you have you know millions of people on the move, refugees. Right. Those tend to destabilize governments. 
So, um, oh, big and, time. and also, you know, supply chain disruption, that's, that, that is a, a great way to destabilize a government is, you know, to not be able to make anything work. Right. And then what was that famous quote you mentioned? You know, we're all about nine meals away from being barbarians or something That's like right. that. That's right. Yeah. So those things are all part of the calculus on whether yeah. we're past the, the tipping point. It's one thing to look at a supercomputer and have it, you know, run these models of what's going to be happening in the physical system. But we also have right. to take into account the, poli the the political response to those things. Yes, the, the human equation. And which actually leads to the set, this next question quite nicely. Uh, any comments on the relevance of the Lord of the Flies? Well, <laughs> go ahead, Christoph. <laughs> I mean, yes, I guess. I mean, I think that um, if we want to talk about Lord of the Flies as relevant to how humans behave under certain pressure and conditions, then sure. Um, and I think that sort of dovetails a little bit with what you were just saying, Sean, which, and both of you were just saying, which is that like scarcity, enough scarcity, and you get a sort of Lord of the Flies sort of scenario. Yeah. yeah. Civilization depends on um, everybody having enough and and not, not exactly. getting past that nine meals point. And I, my favorite moment in the entire film, because I thought it was... Um, you know, obviously watching these kids tear each other apart was was no good. And at the end, they come tumbling out, dump, you know, of some of the of the forest. And there's an adult standing there and he's like, what the hell are you boys doing? <laughs> and that's I view that as the, you know, the mature global governance that we need coming in and just just whipping everybody into shape. I mean, what the yeah. hell are we doing? Well, interestingly enough, I think uh that well, first of all, let's remember that Lord of the Fri Lord of the Flies original book is a fiction. It's just a novel, yeah. right? There actually was a literal Lord of the Flies moment for some Australian kids some years ago, mm -hmm. and they were they were isolated in an island, and they fared much better than the book did. <laughs> so, yeah. so <laughs> I mean, I, I think we can read too much into that. I think the yes, there absolutely is a Lord of the Fly kind of thing with the humans but there's also a collaborative kind of thing with humans and which one's yeah. going to win out really depends on the on the surroundings and the environment and the kind of systems and that that's around this whole thing well it's like the, the book that we're uh currently reading by right. uh, david graber you know it, it contrasts that cooperative view with the hobbesian view and the mm -hmm. lord of the flies yeah. type view and i think that you know, we have to acknowledge that humans are capable of both. And it's really, it's it, there are tipping points that tip human civilization over from the cooperative into the, com, you know, ruthless competition Absolutely. model. And that's yeah. what we're seeing right now. I mean, that's what, that's yeah. what the fascism that's mm -hmm. creeping into America is doing to our country is just turning us into this, you know, uh, where we actually resist even the slightest uh, uh, cooperation, like putting on a mask or whatever it is. Right. Like right. that's right. anathema to some people. They're like, I won't do it. You will not force me. And you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's about as Hobbesian as you can get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well also does this film resonate with the follies around Brexit? That was another question. <laughs> well, Bre Brexit was another one of those self-inflicted wounds that, uh, you know, and I don't know if it was self-inflicted, actually, because we know that there was a big disinformation campaign that led up to Brexit. And, you know, it's reduced GDP. It's hurt everyone. And yet they voted for it. And that's very similar to what we've seen, you know, go on in this country with Trumpism and the, the protectionism and a lot of the very bad economic policies like tax cuts and service cuts 
that that he did. So, I mean, mm. I don't know. Why do people vote against their interests? I mean, it's yeah. What are you going to do? Well, I think we're going to talk about that today to some extent. Why do people do things against their interests? Right. Why do people even get as extreme as what they did in January 6th, right? Storming the Capitol. That's what we're going to talk about next. Any final thoughts on the questions before I move on? Just thank you, everybody, for submitting them. We yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Definitely. We will make... We will make sure that one of us is going to be there from now on during the openings in the live shows, for sure. The truth is, is that most of our traffic comes from the audio podcast. And right. so we hadn't really been paying that much attention to YouTube. But uh, since we produce a TV show every week, we probably ought to be there when it airs. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so now on to our main topic, lessons from January 6th. There's a baseline of bad faith ideology and politics in this country that goes back to the very first European colonists that walked onto these shores, right? The Americas. The list of injustices and atrocities is extensive, to say the least. <laughs> How does January 6th fit into all that? Here we are one year later after the first time in our long history here in America, indigenous and racial ethnic cleansing, genocide, other atrocities are like those that we've talked about in slavery and post-slavery, a brutal civil war, Great Depression, red scares. For the first time in all of that, the Capitol building was violently breached by actors trying to overturn an election. And even Biden mentioned this in his, his, his uh, speech the other day. So Trump, uh, in his sort of uh, spiel to the, to the crowd before January 6th happened. He spoke for like an hour and 11 minutes. He addressed the crowd that he would never concede the race, that they had to fight like hell, quote unquote, said that many times. And if they didn't, you're not going to have a country anymore, quote unquote. He instigated this crisis directly. I don't know how anyone could argue otherwise, but they do. Um, <laughs> What were the results? Law enforcement estimates that the crowd size was about 80,000 before the protest. And then the rally was about 10,000, um, according to the Associated Press. There were more than 1,200 protesters who clashed with the police at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, five people died. Nine, if you count post-suicides. You know, nine people lost their lives. 140 officers plus were injured. Tens of millions of dollars of damage. Rioters left behind feces, blood, bullet holes, graffiti, and bear repellent. Yeah, just a class act. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do we make sense of this? Let's start with our initial reaction. Um, how did you feel that day, Christoph? How did you feel when you watched it happen? And after, uh, if you could tell us your feelings as well, Sean. Yeah. Um, well, I will say this. My response to the January 6th attack was, I don't think, um, typical. Um, certainly, the attack was shocking, right? Surreal. Uh, though I don't think that I was actually concerned about a coup. Um, but the attack was also in many ways not surprising, right? The conservative movement, since the passage of the Civil Rights uh, Act, at least, has been all about white rage at no longer dominating all aspects of society. And then there is an elaborate right-wing media apparatus that's designed to stoke that rage, right, and profit from it. 
Um, and then you have a donor class that's using both of those things to suffocate democracy into plutocracy. So, yeah. you know, January 6th, right, uh, the, the final veneer of decency, faux decency, fell away from the GOP, right? Um, the Jan 6th attack is the GOP. Mm-hmm. And yeah. frankly, it always was. So in some ways, I frankly felt vindicated. Yeah. Well, you know, the gloves came off. Horrified and vindicated. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they just they took their gloves off and um, they demonstrated what they could do because this was, make no mistake, completely planned and instigated. And mm. um, yeah. It, it, yeah, to me, it was terrifying. I mean, I had a similar feeling to the feeling I had on 9-11. Um, mm-hmm. On 9-11, it was you know, commercial buildings that got attacked, but this was the sacred seat of Mm -hmm. our democracy that got attacked. And so Mm -hmm. it was, again, like I said last week, I don't have many things that I consider to be sacred because I'm not religious, but if there's anything in our world that's sacred, it's the temples of science. It's the temples of government. Mm -hmm. It's the temples of, of, of even commerce, you know, when commerce is, is, is framed correctly, right? So this was a just total mm-hmm. desecration of everything that I value. And I'd been up late. I was celebrating the victory of Senators Warnock and Ossoff in Georgia, which was mm-hmm. electrifying. And uh, I didn't wake up until the riot was well underway. And I had I had, had such a sense of relief the previous night, like, okay, we got the, you know, we won Georgia and now we're going to, you know, Biden's going to get certified. And it's like on to the finish, you know, on to the inauguration. And you know, because the previous weeks had been nightmarish for all of us. After Biden won, it was horrifying watching Trump repeatedly cast out on the election. I mean, I had lost a lot of sleep over this because it was clear that the Stop the Steal folks were continuing to double down and they had no intention of conceding. So the only way that this was going to come out right was if they were stopped. And the whole thing was a combination of, of both insurrection and farce, frankly, right? Because these were mm. losers who were declaring themselves to be winners. And we <laughs> yeah. saw, uh, who, who gets away with that, right? Um, <laughs> and we saw these riots yeah. outside of the vote counting offices in Arizona and, and Nevada and, and elsewhere where, you know, clearly somebody put these people up to, you know, these massive turnouts at these, like, like they're going to change the result by showing up at the vote counting i mean like anyway it it, this whole it had it had the vibe of an organized insurrection even before january 6th and yeah remember also that the presidential transition team was denied access to their offices for three weeks and fox and other treason media outlets like newsmax and oan were actually planning to support reinstating trump and this was a large-scale psyop and there were many many players uh Mike Pompeo gave a despicable speech at the State Department in which he alluded to the idea that the Trump administration would be likely to remain in power for another term after they lost the election. Imagine. So (laughs) there was this extremely disturbing chatter on all the social media platforms. And there was a horrific video uh, that was it was a produced like advertisement that the Trumpers were circulating vaguely threatening violence on January 6th. And I honestly didn't take it seriously because you never know, like these guys are pumping this crap out all the time. Right. And I didn't mm. think that their bluster would amount to anything. And, you know, we heard the militias and the three percenters chattering about bringing guns to D.C., but it seemed that there had already been military preparations to prevent that. And I just didn't have this idea of a direct attack on a joint session of Congress on my radar. So it was 
as you said, Christoph, surreal to see it unfold on te television. And what was most surreal about it is that the Capitol security collapsed so quickly, mm. almost as if, as we found out later to be true, it was planned that way. Yeah, I, that that's what was surprising to me. Like, I wasn't surprised that it happened, that we had mm -hmm. this this event, because, you know, honestly, I remember listening to Trump's inaugural address and having literal chills up my spine. I'm saying, oh, my, oh God, my God, this that. guy is really a dictator. This mm -hmm. is not. I mean, like, I, I, I've done a lot of political science research, uh, done a lot of reading. The guys I listen to, the academics are like, ever since then, have been like sounding the warning that we're looking at fascism here. So many of them that this is really dangerous. So when it happened, I'm like, yeah, OK, not surprising to me. But that that, you know, that's what the Capitol Police, that that our system of protecting the government failed so quickly was shocking. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Spectacular failure. It, amazing. And obviously, clearly, now we know that it failed for a reason, right? <laughs> well, people were told to stand down. They were told not yeah. to go. So that's, I mean, we know this. And this is all yep. coming out in the January 6th hearings. But I mean, yeah, like no country. Can you imagine like any other country in the world allowing its seat of government to be breached like that? This doesn't happen, you know? <laughs> well, it's not. And if that if that happened in a different country, we might invade it. Right. Right. To, 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 like that, if that we see that stuff happening in other countries and we feel as the United States compelled to act sometimes yeah. if our interests, if our interests line up, that's how bad that looks. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the United States is not considered a flawed democracy by a lot of measures, a lot of in international measures. I mean, they, mm -hmm. America is no longer the beacon mm -hmm. in the world. No one thinks that right. except for, you know, delusional people, honestly, at this point, <laughs> America has proven itself to be really quite in a mess. Um, Anything that happens but, with a with a, a a country like, for example, South Africa just had a fire in its parliament. It wasn't even a coup or an insurrection, just a fire. And yet you you hear about that in the news and you're like, man, what the hell is happening in that country? Can you imagine right. how America looked to the rest of the world on that day? Oh, I can't even imagine. I just can't. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Well, I mean, the whole Trump administration was like that, honestly. Right. He, we did, the things that happened during that administration was so unprecedented and so shocking to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, we had the, the, some of the state houses were breached before January 6th, right? Yes. With Michigan. no consequences. Mm -hmm. Michigan was most notably. But oh, I think yeah. there was another. I think maybe I forget which one. But anyway, so let's talk about what this means. Let's look at the larger picture. In a very broad sense, there are two related developments in American culture that can help us understand why January 6th occurred. And absolutely, I think you mentioned this earlier, Sean, this did not start on January 6th, right? We have to oh, get no. that through our heads, yeah. right? And so what are these larger processes? One is neoliberalism, the shift towards privatization and the primacy of capital, and the truly damaging effects on life chances for everyday people because of that. Second is the global rise of this right-wing populism related to that, bolstered by techno-enhanced influencers preying on human frailties, which we've talked about in this, in this show. Yeah. I mean, there's more than that, but both of these larger things are behind the ideology that motivated January 6th. Uh, clearly, there is a baseline of bad faith ideology in this country that goes back to the very first European colonists walked on these shores, as I said before. Um, and so what's different here is that 
the underlying society, things like neoliberalism, shifted so that those ideologies really resonated and became far more influential. Um, and, you know, a litany of bad actors pushing bad ideas underscores all of American history, right? None of that is new. <laughs> what is different is the innovations in the way ideas spread, right? That is helping cause this havoc. However, honestly, that's not the only thing. You can't just blame social media. There's a lot of old-style extremism going on here as well. Uh, destructive ideologies create extremism, and they corrode the foundations of our democracy. Uh, ideology is really front, front and center here. This fervor on the right has quickened dramatically of late. We've all seen it. Uh, it's been enhanced by the growing power of activist right-wing actors supported by right-wing billionaires like you you alluded to earlier, Christoph, uh, in this whole new environment. All of this is the backdrop for January 6th. And let me just say a few, just a few details about uh, perspectives, right? I, I like Pew Research. They do a good job of looking at the American, so taking the American pulse. Uh, and right after the attack, most Americans expressed a strong negative reaction to it. 75% of respondents to their surveys believe that Trump was responsible to some degree. Even 52% of Republicans thought as much. It was, after all, as you, you all mentioned, a truly dramatic event that for the moment broke through that miasma of disinterest and misinformation that we are struggling with. It was literally a brief look-up moment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. we, we saw the meteor. I think many mm -hmm. people did. Yeah. <laughs> However... This initial sentiment seemed to have done little to persuade many Republicans of the severity of the attack. Nor did it seem to convince them of Trump's culpability and the need for a strong response and the need for accountability. In fact, the opposite has happened. In March, 79% of Republicans believed it was very or somewhat important to prosecute the U.S. Capitol wiresters. Republicans, okay? By September, that number has dropped 57%. That's a huge drop, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, uh, so Sean, Sean, yeah. let me start with you. How can we explain this hardening of extremism on the right, despite all that's been revealed? And then please, Christoph, please go ahead and, and chime in as well with your perspective. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things I need to say. And the first is that um, we have on the right a form of message discipline that really hasn't mm. been seen. I mean, you look at uh, Ted Cruz is a is a very, very central figure in their party. And he made a statement a few days ago that the January 6th attack had been terrorism and that we needed to take it seriously. And then he basically got taken to the woodshed by Tucker Carlson on national TV a few days later and had to walk all that back. So my point is, and we've seen the same thing with Liz Cheney, we've seen the same thing with a whole bunch of other uh prominent figures in the Republican Party who are no longer allowed to speak their minds about this. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and everything about this, the message discipline and the, the cultishness of this party traces back to the fact that the modern Republican Party post Eisenhower has never, ever, ever, ever believed in democracy. And so this degradation um, 
began long before January 6, 2021. We've been over and over this in past episodes. I mean, they stole the 2000 election from Gore and got away with it. The Supreme Court mm-hmm. stopped the Florida recount before we could even know who actually won. I mean, they stopped the count. I, I you know, if, if you look back on that, I like we could we could go research that and name the players. But there were hundreds of attorneys right. involved in that effort to go down there and basically like, you know, hand the White House to George W. Bush. And if you look at our mm-hmm. current climate crisis and everything else that's transpired since then, the, you know, putting a Gore presidency, you know, starting in 2000 would have been we'd be a, living in a whole different world right now. So that mm-hmm. was that was terrible. And and they they didn't stop there. They they tried to make President Obama a one-term president in spite of his popularity. They completely stonewalled 90% of the Obama agenda, even though it was extremely, uh, a lot of people supported it. They stole a Supreme Court seat from Obama. They tried to steal yeah. the 2020 election from Joe Biden. And they've already said that they will not confirm a Biden Supreme Court nominee. Like they've already said this, and they're going to try to steal the 2024 election. So this is all an absolute given. And um we should take this for granted rather than being surprised by it. Um, The other part you have to realize is Republicans don't think everyone should vote. They really don't. And Mm -hmm. I've drilled down on this in some lengthy conversations. Many Republicans believe that voting is a privilege and should be kept somewhat exclusionary. You'll ask them, for example, if they think that black people and poor people should be officially excluded, and they'll say no, because that sounds really, really bad. But if they had their druthers, they would. And when you drill down, what they're actually saying is that they want people to have to jump through some significant hurdles in order to vote. And they are well aware that those hurdles, such as having a driver's license, are higher for poor people who might not own a car. And so Mm -hmm. we know deep down that the Republicans don't think that majority should rule. They often refer to our system as the tyranny of the majority, which tells you that they actually believe that we should have tyranny of the minority, because what other option (laughs) is there? If the majority doesn't rule, how do you possibly adjudicate disputes, right? So we -hmm. have to fully accept that we're not dealing with a party that's willing to share power. They're going to instead seize power whenever they can get away with it, and they're always going to try to get away with it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's a really key point. I mean... Honestly, even before Gore, right, you always heard, you know, when right wingers talked about sort of our political system, and you said, well, this is a democracy. No, it's not. This is a republic. You know, mm-hmm. like, that goes back 30 oh years, God. right? The it, libertarians love it's saying so that. They love it. A, it comes out like within three minutes of the conversation <laughs> that comes out. It's like, okay, you just outed yourself. <laughs> yeah. No, they believe in minority anyway. rule and minority rule is ultimately goes becomes a dictator. Yeah. Like there's no there's no other way to slice it. If you if you overpower the majority with the minority, you're going to end up with one person in the end. Right. But, you know, Sean, I honestly uh, I want to just say that you have been in the forefront of naming the problem ever since I've known you. And you have been you've been doing this loudly and clearly. Hats off to you, man. I mean, you showed courage early on. You know, uh, one of the great failures of our politics is that inability to name the problem. Uh, most of our, mostly out of fear, you know, they'll seem too partisan or too political or whatnot. So instead, leaders and media have tippy-toed around this growing threat for decades. Mm-hmm. And eh, this approach hasn't worked. It cannot work, clearly. Fortunately, things are starting to change now. You saw it in Biden's speech. He and others like him are naming the problems finally. Um, you wrote an, uh, an F- 
a Facebook post that I thought gave some substance to this and about a week ago or so. And uh, would you mind just sharing some of that with us? Sure, Joe. And thanks for saying that. And it, it has been an absolutely thankless job because I can remember, <laughs> yeah. you know, going back even in the early 2000s, I was being tone policed by other liberals saying, you know, you're alienating potential allies by using this extreme language. It's like, God, no, this is, you know, George W. Bush wanted a theocracy. He just was, you know, it, it, we weren't this far along now. Now, now we're now we're really getting into the point where Republican officials like Mike Flynn are saying openly, we need to have one God, one religion. Right. And and they want it to be officially mandated by the state. And so, like, I I let me just read what I what I I said here, because I don't think any of these things are even the remotest exaggeration. I have facts to back up every single one of these. OK, they've told us they want to impose mob rule with their guns. They've told us they want to silence journalists in Hollywood. They've told us they want one state religion imposed by force. They've told us they are willing to give corporations everything. They've told us they are willing to pardon criminals on their team. They've told us they are willing to disenfranchise voters. They've told us they'll even ignore those they allow to vote. They'll change the count, right? So they've told us they, they're willing to die rather than comply with public health measures. They've told us they're willing to kill the biosphere for fossil fuels. They'd rather lose their entire family than get a shot. They've told us they hate civil society unless it's exclusively white. They've told us they don't want education. They've told us they'd rather destroy America than share it. They've called us weak mm. and snowflake. And they've repeatedly threatened all of us with death and destruction, literally saying they want to shoot liberals. And then they mock us for wanting to live. So that's um, that was only part of the post, but it's really the sad truth that here that we're not dealing with an honest or loyal opposition. We're not dealing with mm -hmm. uh, an opposition that believes in the American project at all. Uh, they, mm -hmm. as we discussed before, they are the natcons. They want they they see the United States as a cultural project, not as a democratic project. So um, we're dealing with this party that's pulling out every possible stop to cement themselves into a position of permanent minority rule to subvert future elections and to install some kind of a president for life dictator in the White House. And we have to pay very close attention to what these people are saying and take them at their word. A lot of times we tend to put these people in the category of the fever swamp, but they're very serious. And yeah. when Steve Bannon took over in early 2017 as White House chief strategist, he said very pointedly that this was the beginning of a 50 year period of conservative rule. And that the goal was to, quote, destroy the administrative state. Well, what's the administrative state? Uh, the GOP likes to also call it the deep state. It's the entire system of checks and balances that both constrains and defines the federal government. That's around 2 million employees who take care of everything from collecting taxes to protecting the environment, to enforcing the law, gathering intelligence, administering public lands, farm programs, health care, social security, soup to nuts. The administrative state is the guts of our government. And Bannon and other top GOP operatives just want it gone. Why do they want it gone? To repeat what's become a cliche, they want a government that protects the wealthy and powerful and binds everyone else. Whereas the administrative state was constructed over the course of the last century for the purpose of protecting all citizens and binding the wealthy and powerful. And as Joe Biden said in his January 6th speech commemorating the anniversary of this terrible event, the GOP wants rule or ruin. And I think that's a key mm. phrase right there. I'm so glad he said that because that's exactly yeah. what Heather McGee was talking about in The Some of Us, 
right? Is how, mm. and she yeah. goes through systematically how the, the refusal to share the country has ruined the country. And that's their gambit. They rule or they're going to ruin the country. And I don't think it gets any clearer than that. And that's yeah, <laughs> this pandemic. Look at this fucking pandemic. I mean, yeah, we're seeing it. Mm. I just want to make one yeah. caveat. Like people are going to say, well, wait a minute. I know a Republican that cares about democracy. I know a Republican that really, absolutely. We're talking about a movement, mm-hmm. right? When we're, we're making, right. we're making uh, statements, declarative statements about the movement. Who, where in this movement, the people that rise to the top, the influencers, the politicians, and so forth, have these agendas. Yeah, and that is mm-hmm. clear. So it's not about you know nitpicking through individuals. Yeah, you're going to find wonderful Republican people. But that isn't the Maybe. point, right? <laughs> they, the point is that even if they're nice people, they're supporting these these leaders, yeah. right? They're voting for them. They're listening to Tucker Carlson and all these people. That's mm-hmm. on them too. That's absolutely right. And um, I, you know, uh, one of the things that both of you have said, and I think it's absolutely right and so important is, and, and new, frankly, and that is... Um, Joe Biden and other uh, progressives that are in those powerful positions prepared to actually call out the problem for what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a lot of what we started this show, the, fr- the frustration that generated this show in the first place mm-hmm. is that somebody has to say what we're dealing with here, that we are in, we are in a knife fight in a phone booth. Let's not pretend we're having a, uh, a picnic with uh, with the loyal opposition. That is not the situation we are facing here. Um, and I, as we're, as we're talking here, I'm reminded of, and as I was thinking about this before the show, um, I was reminded of the federal rules of evidence. And in particular, I was reminded of the hearsay rule. So everybody buckle up, I'm gonna get a bit geeky here. <laughs> um, uh, hearsay is testimony from a witness under oath who is reciting an out of court statement that is being offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. And hearsay is inadmissible in a court of law. Now, the hearsay rule is confusing, even to people who are lawyers, I think, and it's not the point here. I'm bringing it up because I want to highlight one of the exceptions to the uh, to the hearsay rule, and there are several exceptions. And it's called the excited utterance exception. And the that exception to the hearsay rule admits evidence um, Mits into evidence, that is, statements related to startling events or conditions that were made while the declarant was under the stress of excitement caused by the event or condition. And the theory underlying the exception is that under startling, abnormal circumstances, people tell the truth. But over time, our capacity to see things for what they are or desire to see them as they are, fades dramatically. And eventually we end up seeing mostly what we want to see, Mm -hmm. right? So query whether that's what's happened to the GOP, the Jan 6 rioters, and in particular various apologists. What I'm saying is that, right, everyone at the time of the shocking event, people said what was actually happening. Right. Uh, even Mish McConnell, even Lindsey right? Graham, these people, even <laughs> Lindsey Graham, they said what has a- actually happened. And that was an excited utterance. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but here now uh, that has faded. And I really believe that a lot of these folks, yeah, they're people that are outright lying for sure. But there are people who have convinced themselves. Right. Right. That they but right. Because like I, I like to say all the time, right, people. There, it's rarely is there a smoky room with a bunch of people <laughs> sitting around like hatching plans. Usually it's no- people that think of themselves as normal, 
right? As average good people, and they've deluded themselves, they've convinced themselves of something that's just simply not true. It goes like this. I mean, you have um, January 6th, very, very bad, right? But they're looking at it and they're going, oh, well, Trump is getting us what we want. If we acknowledge the truth about January 6th, that's going to look very bad for Trump. And that means we don't get what we want. So it's just, it's, it's a, just a transparent um, elision of, of, of the truth for purposes of power. And I don't, I don't understand how it's so difficult for people to yeah. see this. Mm-hmm. I think it's both what you said. I, 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 both dynamics are going on. I mean, thanks for that perspective, Christoph. I thought that it was actually quite important yes, because there's an underlying <clears throat> There's an underlying psychology to all of this. And I really also like your analogy. What it also illustrates is how we develop institutions and create rules of conduct in order to compensate for these human propensities to go so off Such a great point. Mm -hmm. I mean, such a great point. That's why we need the institutions. That's why we need to have good systems because humans are like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. So let me just give you some numbers because, you know, that's just me talking about, you know, the geek. (laughs) Uh, But the numbers uh, I mentioned earlier, the 79 dropped into 57 percent of Republicans that thought this, you know, that people should be prosecuted, matched with other assessments by academics and law enforcement officials. uh, And they're measuring the extent of the extremism on the right and the power of these influencers as well. What is clear is that tens of millions of people, you mentioned it 6%, Sean, but certainly tens of millions support the actions of January 6th, these insurrectionists. I think it's about 19 million way, people. 19 million people yeah, is that 6% like that. are hardcore far-right extremists. And it's the same cohort that supports and celebrates a 17-year-old boy with an assault gun, assault weapon, gunning down BLM activists, right? Same people, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where we need to narrow our focus a bit here. What's going on there? It is pure violence potential. um, And we must take note of the dire warnings being sounded from these scores of academics I mentioned earlier, these experts from fascism and totalitarianism, and also from honored and respected top public servants that Mm -hmm. are speaking out, from law Mm -hmm. enforcement that's speaking out, and even from mm. the military guys, right? High-ranking high, mm-hmm. high ranking generals are publicly warning us that elements of the armed forces have fallen into this extremism and could support a coup. I mean, think about that. We have to take note. Terrifying. We have to take note of things like state Republican elected officials passing laws to seize partisan control of the electoral process when they choose to, Right. So this extremist power thing is consolidating before our eyes. It's as plain as day. Uh, How can anyone on the right uh, not willing to participate in this coup, right? Anyone there, how can any of these people who weren't willing to participate to stand up to it and say, well, for what it was, you know, how could they be pushed out so quickly and so readily Mm -hmm. as they are? They're being stripped of power. There's a machinery of takeover, that's being created here. Uh, If this is not a lookup moment, gentlemen, I don't know what is. So let's continue with this conversation. The coup attempt that occurred on January 6th was not only an assault on democracy, it was a serious criminal set of actions that happened in many other ways. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, 140 police officers were physically attacked and injured. Many, many more were emotionally scarred to the point of some of them take, committing suicide. Mm. So far, a few hundred riders have been charged with assault 
and about 40 with various forms of conspiracy. More than 600 have been charged with other crimes, misdemeanors, and so forth. Uh, this is obviously a rhetorical question, guys, but are these punishments <laughs> even close to enough? More importantly, what is impeding an appropriate response? The one we need to avoid the fall of our democracy, people. Yeah. Oh, man, what a brutal thing to think about. You know, you try and, and, and laugh about it or, 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 or be lighthearted about it. And, and it's really difficult to do. Uh, but uh, the response uh, by the government, et cetera, was, has definitely been insufficient. But again, also not terribly surprising. I, I'm reminded here of Abraham Lincoln's leniency with the South post-Civil War, right? And his goal was to keep the country united. And I think that's legitimate concern for anyone who's trying to run a government and run a country. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's a little bit of what's going on here. Uh, but my main problem with all of this is how the rioters were treated before and after and during the January 6th attack yeah. and how different it was would have been and how it all would have gone down if it had been BLM protesters, <laughs> black or white protesters, but especially black BLM protesters with mohawks and shit in Washington, D.C. that day. I just don't think that the white privilege element of this has been highlighted nearly enough. I mean, it's almost comical how these people were treated with with kid gloves, right? Yeah. Um, we, we now hear that they didn't even set up for a real, for, for they, they, the, uh, the authorities did not set themselves up to deal with this at all. And I say, even if it wasn't explicit, that is, there's this implicit um, idea, especially on the, eye, on, the, on the side of police officers, that, well, these are our people, right? Yeah. They're not those people. Yeah. Like Kyle. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. Exactly. Look, man, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that when anyone, any Democrat brings up January 6th, they go, what about the BLM protesters burning down cities? Oh my God. It's like this kind of false equivalence. Oh how... How can anyone say that with a straight face? You know, people it's, busting up a couple of shop windows, you know, I mean, that it's it's just so it's different. It's not <laughs> the same. We're not talking about a joint session of Congress, the most sacred event in our country that happens once every four years to count the votes. It's like, are mm -hmm. you kidding me? Anyway, um, I, I could just I, this is so infuriating and I, I'm, I'm smiling, but it's just it's just like this uncomfortable, like, uh, uh I don't actually care that much about the rioters themselves from the Capitol. Okay. They're a bunch of fucking losers. Uh, if they trespassed or damaged property or assaulted someone, they should be prosecuted. But throwing those seven or 800 people in prison won't do anything whatsoever to stop the Republican anti-democracy movement. And no, it won't. I was highly unimpressed with Merrick Garland's speech. It was milk toast. It was generic. It was procedural. He did say some good and important things, but it's like that dude is literally fighting the last war. His ironclad dedication to procedure is absolutely not up to the task of taking on a criminal insurgency that has completely taken over one of America's two main political parties. And he did the thing I despise most, which is that he both sides the issue. Here's the quote from Merrick Garland. These acts and threats of violence are not associated with any one set of partisan or ideological views. Bullshit. Fucking bullshit. Bullshit. That's not naming the problem. Exactly. Exactly. I understand why Garland is trying to appear impartial for the same reason probably that Abraham Lincoln was trying to keep the country together, right? It's not because Garland mm -hmm. doesn't know which side is right here. 
but he thinks he has to pander to this false balance thing in order to be seen as a credible law enforcement agent. But he will never get that credibility from Republicans. Right. So the pandering that goes on to try to maintain this false balance, it's like, um, give it up. We're not dealing with a party that's going to ever give you any credit. And, you know, every bit of this is on the GOP and Merrick Garland needs to be going after all organizations involved in seditious conspiracies with tools like RICO. And that might include going after the Republican Party itself with RICO. That is the kind of bold stroke action that needs to happen here. And, you know, some of those organizations aren't just domestic terror organizations. They are they have ties to foreign nations and certainly ties to wealthy sponsors of domestic extremists like the Kochs and the Mercers who also don't believe in democracy. And we need to be going after these coup plotters all the way to the top. The Justice Department definitely knows who these people are. That includes Trump, Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, Paul Gosar, Josh Hawley, Kevin McCarthy, Rudy Giuliani, Tucker Carlson, Alex Jones, Mike Lindell. I mean, the list goes on. I could name off another 50 names and all the party hacks and their media surrogates on the right who push election lies. And there are at least, you know, there are dozen, if not dozens of senators and possibly a hundred House Republicans who are complicit in this idea of disputing any elections they don't win. And their strategy is heads I win, tails you lose. And that's all Mm -hmm. we're going to ever hear from them from now on. And by the way, I have to also mention here that a substantial portion of corporate America is financially backing many of the coup plotters. After the January 6th attack last year, a number of corporate donors and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce itself pledged not to support those who contested the 2020 election. But it was total window dressing because most of these corporate and wealthy donors picked up their donations again after just a month or two because they know which side of the bread their butter is on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we need to applaud the few Republicans who've remained consistent in their denunciation of the January 6th riot. And Boy, does this make strange bedfellows. Um, did you see that Democrats uh, applauded for Dick Cheney? Yeah, I know. Yesterday? Yeah. I, I mean, just wow. <laughs> it's just crazy. It just shows of where we yeah, are. You know, like what? You Carl know. Rove wrote an, an, an editorial in the, in the Wall Street Journal saying that uh, Republicans were off yeah. base here. And and Carl Rove is one of the people that created this monster. And now he's looking back right. at it. That, that, that's that's what I'm saying. That pops in my head right away. Fuck you guys. Fuck you guys. Because you rode this gravy train the entire time. You knew this. You all knew this, right? You all created this. Don't now look at us and say, oh my God, everybody, what? How could this have happened? Fuck you. Listen, um, and, yeah. and, and, that, and, and, and I second that, third that. I mean, yeah, me too. Uh, but look at what Carl Rove did. Remember when Obama won the second time and Karl Rove tried to reverse the Fox News call? I mean, this guy has been post-truth um, from the get-go. And now, you know, he's yep. looking at it and trying to deny that he had any involvement. But it just shows, though, how far we've fallen that mm-hmm. guys who are on the same side as Democrats now in terms of preserving democracy are those Good same point. guys, right? Absolutely. It's insane. <laughs> it, it's crazy. It, it speaks to where we are. It shows yeah. like the Overton window, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just shifted so far that we are now looking and being like, and looking wistfully at George W. Bush. Like, holy yeah. shit. 
Yeah. yeah. And we've got precious little time to change any of this before we're going to be in another election season. I mean, the 2022 midterms are right here. They're, you know, by April or May, we're already like into the midterms, you know, and yeah. <laughs> it looks very likely that we're going to be turning over the control of the House of Representatives to Republicans. And all we need is one net Senate flip to turn over the Senate. So then Biden, barring a miracle, will be a lame duck president um, with given the approval ratings that he doesn't have. And um, mm -hmm. also Supreme Court, they've been very hostile to voting rights and we've got full Republican state control in about half the states. And these state parties are talking about letting their state legislatures assign electoral votes instead of following the popular vote. And the most concerning thing of all about this is that there are people who tried to overturn the 2020 election now running for secretary of state in at least 12 states. And if they win, it's almost guaranteed that we can't have a fair election in 2024. So. Yeah, I mean, these these new laws are like orders of magnitude more serious than even like, you know, voter ID laws and stuff. I mean, they, they can just. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the idea of it is just frightening. That this is raw power grab. Yeah. Um, anyway, any other thoughts? Uh, in this regard, I want to just give a profile of the extremists. Uh, mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit, both of you, about the people behind this and how we should think about it. And let's take a look who they were. Again, there's some great research has been done on this issue. Um, the data shows that uh, in all, what this research is showing is that January 6th was a mainstream phenomena, not mm -hmm. fringe. That's really what we have to focus on. The profile of these actors is very different than the profile of these fringe right-wing extremists that we're typically used to mm -hmm. in the United States and elsewhere in Europe and so forth. This is really critical. Only 13% of those who have been arrested uh, are from, from like the Oath Keepers or extremist groups like the Proud Boys. Only 7% of the people arrested for January 6th were unemployed. Same as the national average at the time. Over half were business owners, CEOs from white collar occupations like doctors, lawyers, and architects. We're not talking about skinheads here, guys, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. The January 6th insurrectionists are older than the fringe groups are. Uh, they're, they're people that were concentrated in their 40s and 50s. They were more educated. Um, only about 30% had a prior criminal history, mostly for misdemeanors like marijuana charges, which is more in line with the general population and much less so with the fringe elements like the Proud Boys, which tend to be like 60 or 70% mm -hmm. in that category. Mm -hmm. So in particular, Robert Pape, a professor of political science at Chicago, University of Chicago, has done some really extensive, this is where I'm getting this data from. Uh, and he's done some great research on this. And what he said, quote, the more the county votes for Trump, the less likely was the county to send an insurrectionist. Now, think about That's that. wild. Okay. So, the insurrectionists came from places where they were minorities, political minorities. The more rural, the less likely to send an insurrectionist. Okay. We got to pause there and think about that. What stuck out most in the data is this, and this is really the kicker here. They came from the counties losing the most white populations in the mm -hmm. United States. The number one belief by their own accounts driving these actors was, by their own words, the Great Replacement. <laughs> okay, Pope says, quote, what we're seeing is really a quite stable 21 million who are in this insurrectionist movement. 
And what they are f- most afraid of is brown and black people. Well, that number almost yeah. lines up perfectly with the number I quoted earlier yeah. about 19 percent. It does. Um, it's, 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 sure that's does. The, this is basically this is the number. Now, here's the other thing. About 2 million of these of this 21 million report having been part of a protest in the last 12 months. Okay. As such, this this is like if you look at the studies of, of mass movements, popular movements all around the world, including all the way up to terrorism, right? This meets the classic definition of a popular movement, not fringe, mm. right? It's this significant community support, these 21 million that make the violent actors feel like they're not criminals, like they actually have a popular mandate to do this shit, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Pope's expertise comes from looking at such movements across the world, including he's done a lot of work with ISIS, right? And they use social media, these groups, like they use social media to recruit, and that's a big element of it and all that for sure. But here's the other thing, right? What was really startling about January 6th insurrectionist supporters is how they uh, and others in in this 21 million, they say their news sources are conservative mainstream, Right, like Fox mm-hmm. News, News, Newsmax, One America, those kinds of sources. Only twenty percent say social media, like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Right, so they're getting their radicalization, their extremism from these massive media institutions. Right, mm-hmm. only ten percent report that it's a far right social media like Gab or Telegram. Right, it's yeah, it's Fox. Right, and so. This is more evidence, even still, that we're not talking about a fringe element because they're looking at they're looking at mainstream media, right wing mainstream media, right? That relies primarily. Um, so social media plays a role and it's important, but we can't just say this is all about social media, right? Long past that, it seems as if we are in a new phase, far closer to the Weimar Republic than our ruddy Nazi punks and skinheads acting out. That's what people have to understand. This is not just a bunch of the fringe bad actors here. That's right. So, Sean, how are you, how do we parse this? How do we parse this, uh, Christoph? Can you guys help me out here? Look, man, I mean, Hitler was democratically elected. Okay. And there was, you know, it's, it's this one third, one third, one third kind of, um, kind of division of society where you say, you know, there's, there's one third who are extremists. Um, and there's one third who are opposing them. And there's another third who are just watching the whole thing happen. Right. And so I don't know what the numbers are. Like it it doesn't even have to be a third 21 million is plenty. And that's only like, you know, uh, if, if you figure that 150 million people voted in the last presidential election, okay. 21 million people is a, is a small fraction of that. It's just a, it's just a little over 10% and, and a little over 6% of the entire population. So, um, but it's nested, Sean. It's like you have the 2 million that are doing the violent crimes mm-hmm. or going to the protest. Then you have the 21 million diehards around them. And then you have soft supporters around them as well. That's right. Yeah. So it's a nested thing. And they also all congregate around, I mean, I would say that Tucker Carlson is the most, he is the center of this movement at this point. And even he's even mm-hmm. eclipsed people like Sean Hannity. And, and you know, he, he is the center of the white supremacist cultural nationalist movement in the United States. And as long as he's continuing to talk to this audience and keep them whipped up, you know, not even people like Ted Cruz can back away from it. Yeah, you yep. know, I know a lot of the folks who were in the Capitol on January 6th 
not the source of this problem. Okay. Some of them were hardcore white supremacists. Some of them were Christian nationalists. A lot of them were a member of this group that you're talking about, Joe, but a substantial number of them were just there because they got caught up in Trump's rhetoric or the election right. conspiracy nonsense. Right. I mean, we have to understand that first of all, the fucking president of the United States told them to attack the Capitol. That's the way, you know, we can't, we can't get around this fact that Trump literally told them to fight, to go there, to fight. You're mm -hmm. not going to have a country left. Right. So I, I was really impressed, though, Joe, because I heard the interview that you posted on. It was the Daily Podcast uh, from New York Times. And yeah. the, the episode that we listened to was called The Herd Mentality. And they have the FBI interviewing a guy who was inside the Capitol building. And when you hear him talk, it's clear he is really not a guy who's interested in treason. And. A lot mm -hmm. of people like him got caught up in the herd mentality of what was going on. They clearly didn't understand the seriousness of it. Uh, not everyone who was there smashed windows or attacked cops. Not everyone vandalized offices or had criminal intent. Some just walked in because everyone else was walking in. So I was really yeah. impressed with that interview. And obviously that guy should pay the price for breaking the law. Um, but I sincerely don't think that that guy who they were talking to had the intent to overthrow our government. And that's what's so dangerous about this kind of thing being normalized by the Republican Party is that there's a bandwagon effect when it comes to contesting elections. No one likes to lose an election. It sucks. But now we're validating the feeling a lot of people have that when they don't like the result, that somehow gives them license to contest the process. And it's the process of holding elections that is what is sacrosanct in America. Absolutely. That's what we, we can't let that be destroyed. We need to make sure that everyone who wants to vote can vote and that when they do, their vote is counted and counted accurately. And it's still shocking to me that there are people who are seriously considering overruling state electoral college results. I mean, this is happening in the fucking United States of America. People in the GOP are seriously talking about letting governors, secretaries of state and legislatures overrule the will of the voters in the 21st century. We just cannot let this happen. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. And it's just, uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record here. But um, as horrible as all of this is, uh, you know, I'm not surprised. Right. Yeah. Uh, the white people who attended lynchings of black people like it was a fucking carnival were average church going folks, too. Mm -hmm. right? Yes, they, were. they weren't they they weren't sociopathic convicts. Right. And and average Germans watched as Jewish folks were abducted by the SS. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like these are average people whipped up, like you say, Sean, in the group and herd mentality or really, really concerned about uh, in, about about conflict. And so now two things are absolutely true. Right. Terrible things usually don't happen without complicit average people. Right. Uh, there's always going to be some people who don't stand up, that don't fight back, who are willing to look the other way, who say, oh, look, my life is important and I just want to get through the day. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm just trying to put food on my table. I don't want to deal with all that so that you have that element. And then there's also just the issue here that human behavior is extremely volatile when we're in crowds. Right. Um, Trump knows this. Every single authoritarian ever knew this, and it's a huge part of how we got to January 6th, right? If you understand crowds, and 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 I think and I, I, Trump is, a, is not a very smart man, it's not like he's insightful, but he understands intuitively mm -hmm. yeah. how to control crowds and how to control how to tap into people's, frankly, their lizard brains, right? The that that deep, deep part of our brain that's very animalistic. So um again. Am I shocked? 
Yes. Am I horrified? Yes. Am I pissed off more than anything else? Yes. <laughs> Am I surprised? No. No. <laughs> No, no, no. None of us here are surprised. I'm sure many of our listeners aren't either. No. Um, so, I mean, one question I have to ask you guys, and this is an honest and sobering question here. Is there any chance reversing the course at this point? Man, let me jump in on this. Okay. I, so, yes, there's a chance. Um, are the are the um, are the odds good? Probably not. But um, as I say all the time here on the show, and as you all know, I am fundamentally an optimist. I am an Obama Democrat, right? And I believe that there is always hope, right? And um, and I think that it's also important that we maintain proper perspective, right? Humanity, and I hate to have to talk in these terms, but humanity almost certainly will persist, right? And hmm. the earth will definitely persist, regardless of what we do. Um, and I do believe that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And I think that it's up to each of us to get humble in the face of the scale of that arc, right? And to do our little part along the way. The odds of this turning around, mm. um, even in my lifetime, are slim, right? And, and I, I think that I will lose my mind unless I put it into some right. sort of perspective, yeah. right? And I think and and I think that is the critical piece here. Um and 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 to focus on that north star, right? <laughs> and realize that I might not get there. I in fact, I probably won't get there in my lifetime, right? But I am doing my part and and encouraging other people to do their part as well, which is important. Yeah, I mean, if right. we Thank could, if we could be like, you know, if if you see this chain of you know people standing on each other's shoulders, if we could be uh, the shoulders that the people in the twenty third or twenty fourth century can stand on. I mean, I th I can't think of a better reason to live my life, right? Is to, right. to do that, and because because we know, okay, look, the GOP is going to do whatever it wants. They they have got uh, the institutional power right now. They've got the money on their side. They will put in their handpicked secretaries of state in red states. They will try to overturn future elections. They'll probably succeed. And Dems should be contesting every single one of these races this year. It might be our last chance to get you know, mm. skilled technocrats into those positions who are not going to have, you know, allow the thumb to be put on the scale. Right. And uh, January 6th was an over uh, was an attempt to overturn a federal election. But remember, presidential elections are actually conducted by the states and the coup plotters realize this. Remember also that Trump literally tried to convince Georgia's secretary of state to find 11000 votes. He's on tape saying yeah. this <laughs> now. Imagine if Brad Raffensperger had been a Trump loyalist. Imagine if he had found the 11,000 votes and then that was all a court battle and all that. I mean, it, it's, it would have been a circus, but it also could have resulted in Trump remaining in office. So this is the kind of shenanigans we have to look forward to in 2022 and 2024 at the state level. And I just don't understand why in the Democratic Party there isn't a greater sense of urgency on this. I don't either. We, I don't either. We know that prior to the 17th Amendment, which was fully ratified in 1913, senators were elected by their state legislature. So it's just barely been 100 years that that we've actually even had a popular vote for for uh, for these high offices. And uh, what Republicans are trying to do is to roll back the clock to before the early 20th century and giving give themselves the power to overrule the will of the people at the state level. Because I think this this sort of um, appointment of senators by state legislatures was a big part of why Reconstruction failed. I mean, aside from mm. other things, other examples we can come up with and, you know, Andrew Johnson and, you know, all the things that, yes. <laughs> that happened there. Okay. Um, 
there were many reasons why it failed, but certainly not having a popular vote for senator was one of them. And if we go back to where legislators are now electing presidents, you know, it's a it's a very it's a very big retrenchment. <laughs> yeah, really, really is, man. That's wow. So if we count um, also, we, we have to consider the Electoral Count Act um, in which senators can challenge electoral votes. And this hasn't really been used significantly in the past, but on uh, January 6, 2021, six senators objected. And if there hadn't been a riot, I, it was reported that there was like over a dozen who were planning to object. So if Republicans control both the Senate and the House, they can throw out any electoral result they want. And this is extremely dire. We shouldn't have such an antiquated system. When people vote and the votes are counted properly, the results should be automatic. And I don't know why we have this extra step, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, are they just the Republicans? You see the pattern over the last 30, 40 years. They keep upping the ante. If they were to lose the next election, what's next? Right. Mm -hmm. They're going to up the ante. I, I have no doubt about that. Are we going to be prepared for it? I want to see clear signs that the Democrats are taking this seriously. It was hopeful what Biden said in his speech that he named the problem finally to some extent, not 100 percent. But I think it would have been nice for him to, to talk about the, the white replacement and the racism behind all this. I wish he had. Yeah. Uh, because that's really a center of all this. And we're still just dodging that bullet. People don't, you know, the, the, the left is really not talking about that. Certainly not the, the established left. We're, we're still f afraid to bring that issue up. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. we, we got to bring it up, right? We got to bring it up because that is the heart of this. Yeah. And if we don't bring it up, we're not addressing the heart of the problem. That's right. I mean, come on. That's right. Uh, and if I don't see that, I mean, that's a bad sign. If we don't see, uh, you know, stop messing around with the filibuster and just friggin' do something about it. I don't know, man. That's I it. And I hear this constantly um, on the on the Democratic side. You know, an unpunished coup attempt is a training exercise. Well, yeah, fucking duh. A lot. Fucking duh. OK, <laughs> I hate this framing because this coup didn't start with the January 6th insurrection as I as no. I as I laid out and as you laid out, Joe. I mean, this is this is an old problem. And Christoph, like you're talking about this going all the way back to, you know, to to the Civil War. And um, right. mm -hmm. <laughs> this has not even led up for a single day. Uh, the, the coup is still in progress. I sadly give it about a 75 to 85 percent chance of succeeding. And I don't really know the time frame here, because like you said, this could be for the rest of our lives. And then what happens in the future to break this logjam and dislodge these people from power? I don't know. I, I, I you know, I don't know. And, and the main reason for this high number is because too many Americans aren't taking this seriously. If we had a general strike, if we put tens of millions of people in the street, we could stop this. But just like that, just like that. Uh, OK. And, and Americans just don't understand what's at stake. And even Republicans, two thirds of Republicans believe the 2020 election was stolen. But nowhere near that number want an American dictatorship, even with all the bad right. faith that they participate in. Many Republicans, they just want low taxes and budget cuts and smaller government and white supremacy, of course. But they're not. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, of course, obviously. <laughs> but they're not trying to turn America into a dictatorship. They still sincerely believe that their party is going to lead to a better America. And it's sad because we know that it's, it's ruler ruin. And so I'm just going to go through this real quick. Three things we need to do. We need to pass the Voting Rights Act reforms. Um, we need to challenge these state attempts at voter suppression. We need to elect Democratic secretaries of state. And we need to prosecute the coup plotters 
not just the people who are in the Capitol. Right. It's a do or die yes. moment for America. We've, you know, like we always talk about the frog in the pot here. And it's so, um, you know, it's one of our <laughs> oldest uh, kind of funny metaphors that we do. And, uh, you know, we're in the pot. The water's almost boiling. The heat was first turned up when the GOP started its Southern strategy after Barry Goldwater lost to Lyndon Johnson in the landslide in 1964, which happened to be the year I was born. But this is a terrible metaphor because it turns out that the frog will jump out of the pot before it starts boiling. And that, right. that means that frogs are smarter than the American people, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. 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 So once a fascist dictatorship <sighs> takes root, it'll be very hard to change anything. We can't count on free elections. The types of policies that will come out of unified GOP control will be somewhere between merely horrific and downright genocidal. And we've already seen it. We've seen it with COVID. We've seen it with gun policy. We've seen it with climate. This party does not value American life. And so nope. this is do or die. Yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, I had to say I had to, I had to agree with, with that, Sean. And, uh, you know, it's been a really great show, everybody. Uh, thanks. You think, you know, I really appreciate talking to you guys as like I always do. And always I like to thank the audience as well. But uh, what comes to mind is and is whatever the scale in terms of the timeline is, right, is the solution to exploitation, the solution to oppression is always solidarity, yes. right? It's all, that's always the solution. There is no other way because when we're separated and we're, and and this is why there's this, 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 this push to think of us all as like little islands and economic uh, independent people, because it's really easy to control, to distract uh, people when they when they think of themselves as not one of uh, one of the group, not part of a of, of workers, right? Or the, or if they identify with the um, you talk about Andrew Johnson, if they if they, if Andrew Johnson identified with the planter class, right? He didn't see himself as as one of the poor people, poor whites that he that as that, like he grew up, he saw himself as one of them, right? So that's a lot of things that happens here in the United States, United States as well. So um, we're distracted by all kinds of stuff, technology. Uh, and of course, our um, you know, uh, and consumer culture in general. Um, and until we can get people, uh, we're distracted by work itself, right? We, mm -hmm. we we work. People work 10, 12, 15 hour days, and you have no time to think about anything else. You don't have time to think about what's happening in the government, right? You don't, and and you don't even you don't you don't even have time to look up. So until uh, you know, I think that as as it gets gets worse and worse. Um, eventually you'll get to a point where people will pay attention, right? And it's so sad that we have to, that the frog has to get to that point, right? That we as the frog have to get to that point because there's so much suffering, unnecessary suffering that will happen between now and then, whenever that time is. Yeah. Um, and so, look, like I said, what we can do is what we're doing here. Right. Obviously, we can vote. We can do all the things that we do. We, we, we try and shake people out of their lethargy. Right. Um, through various different ways. Uh, you, Sean, you have your approach. I think I have a bit of a different approach. I think, Joe, you have a different approach. But I think that different people are reached in different ways. And I think that is important that we that we here at this channel. Uh, try and do that, and 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 I always say to my wife, I'm out here radicalizing motherfuckers. <laughs> that is what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone in my life, if you are friends with me long enough, I will radicalize your ass <laughs> definitely. And that is what. And, and like I said, I know the people who I who I don't have a lot of control over events or people, but I can affect the people around me. And and thanks to social media, here's a good thing about social media. That voice is amplified. 
by many, many times. And that is a good thing. So yeah. um, um, the anchor for us has to be that vision of hope. It has to be that vision of, of, of the United Federation of Planets, but it has to be a realistic. It can't be, it can't be sugarcoated. It can't like, like, uh, like Penn said last week, I'm not going to sugarcoat this shit. No. Right. Yeah. We have to tell people the truth. And, um, I'm glad to be here with you to, uh, tell them the truth. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was great. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that we do have to tell the truth. Not telling the truth has not worked. No. Right. It sure hasn't. <laughs> truth and reconciliation. They go together. That's what we're all about. We're, we've got, we're, we name problems here and then we give solutions as much as we can. And we'd love your input. Please let us know what you think about our show. Uh, remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Check out our Patreon and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Joe Kipinti. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, and Joe Okipinti. Logo and main title design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and original theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti. Radical Secular.